The federal government is tightening travel measures to help slow the spread of COVID-19 and its highly infectious variants, including those mandatory stays at quarantine hotels. Restrictions has some worried about what could soon be off limits. Hi, I'm Ramnik Johal. And I'm Carol Eugene Park. This is Decomplicated. I know by now we all feel like we have been living in quarantine for years. But today, March 11th, is the official one-year anniversary of the pandemic. The kind of anniversary I would not like to commemorate, by the way. Likewise. On this day in 2020, the World Health Organization had officially named that the coronavirus outbreak around the world had been upgraded to a pandemic. Since then, a lot has changed, even though every single day has felt the absolute same. I mean, to start on a positive note, many countries are in the midst of their vaccine rollout, which is good news. But the reality is that the pandemic is far from over. Most days, Canadians wake up to the latest updates on COVID variants, like the UK variant, the South African variant, the Brazilian variant, and now the Californian variant. And while there were moments when we thought we were seeing the light, there are concerns about a third wave in Canada. For sure. And every few weeks, provinces are extending or changing the details of their lockdown measures. But the only restriction that hasn't changed much is traveling. Since the beginning of this pandemic, the federal government has advised Canadians against all non-essential travel. And that's what we're going to explore today. How are people traveling during the pandemic, both in a legal and in a moral sense? What is considered non-essential travel? What is actually illegal? And what is just strongly discouraged? And more importantly, how do those on the front lines of this pandemic for the last year feel about all of this? So let's dive in. First, to get the basics around the federal travel restrictions, I connected with Kara Zwiebel, a lawyer and director of the Fundamental Freedoms Program at the Canadian Civil Liberties Association, aka the CCLA. The CCLA is a national nonprofit group that works to protect and promote the rights of people across Canada. Here she is. So at the federal level, like at the level of, of you know, sort of the national government, um, there are restrictions on who can come into the country, but as far as Canadians returning to the country in general, there's no restrictions on Canadians leaving the country, even though it's being discouraged. Recently, in Canadian headlines, Trudeau announced new restrictions that were intended to address this, given that people can technically still travel. Here's Kara. And then there are some new rules that are relatively new rules that have come into effect that are designed to deal with Canadians when they return to the country um, and are also, I think, designed to discourage people from leaving the country in the first place. So, you know, when you fly into Canada now, you are expected to have had a COVID test uh, within 72 hours of your departing flight. 
a negative COVID test. And then when you arrive, um, Canada has restricted international arrivals to four airports in the country. So you can fly into Vancouver, Calgary, Montreal, or Toronto. You are required to have another COVID test on arrival. Um, and then you're required to quarantine in a um, designated hotel at your own expense. Hmm. And then what happens? Kara said you also have to take another COVID test after three days. And if that comes back negative, you are then allowed to quarantine at home for the remainder of the 14 days. But Kara admits, even as a lawyer, she can see how the rules can be really confusing. Although I'll be honest, the, the rules around all of this are, are very complicated um, and are, are laid out in a document that's like, you know, dozens of pages long that lays out exactly the different circumstances. There are a couple of exemptions and exceptions. I'm just going to be honest here. These restrictions seem counterproductive to me because we know we shouldn't be traveling domestically and especially internationally, period. But these restrictions don't really have firm instructions, like Canadians are strongly advised against traveling, but they're not prohibited. And we know that when people have options, they'll take the ones that benefit them the most, which often is individual happiness, like traveling to Whistler for ski season. Facts. So I asked Kara about the difference between essential and non-essential travel. How are people traveling for non-essential purposes and what exactly is considered essential? Here she is. Exactly what constitutes essential travel is, is also a bit of a complicated question. So it's not the case that just because you're going away um, and it's not for a leisure purpose that you don't have to follow these rules. You know, I've spoken to people who are, you know, traveling to look after sick relatives in other countries, um, something that they would not consider, you know, something they would consider essential. That's not an exception sort of from the government's perspective. Um, so there are exceptions for people who are bringing cargo and essential goods into the country and things like that. Right. Because definitions for essential and non-essential are so subjective. They differ based on whether you're motivated by business and capital gain or whether public health and safety matter most. Another confusing layer to add here is that in addition to the different rules for essential and non-essential travel, there are also different rules for air travel and for travel by land. Here's Kara again. Interestingly, a difference between a difference in how the rules work if you arrive by air versus um, if you arrive by land. So this hotel quarantine requirement is specific to people who are flying into the country. If you are driving into the country, you don't have to do that. You know, I'm not sure why the distinction was made between air travel and land travel, except that um, it, it's probably a bit easier to enforce some rules um, when you have everyone coming in through four airports versus a bunch of different land borders and sort of relying on individual officers. And, and also, I mean, we get a lot of goods by land, um, so it would probably significantly slow things down if we put in some of those rules at the, at the land borders. I mean, I think there are good questions about whether this kind of restriction on movement is um, justified and necessary. So beyond the new hotel restrictions that came into effect in late February, what about the really high financial penalties that are listed on the government website? 
Yeah, people may remember the really high penalties and potential jail time that is related to the Quarantine Act. I asked Kara what that would actually mean for Canadians. Under the Quarantine Act, the maximum fines are really high, um, you know, like $750,000. I would like to think um, that those kinds of fines wouldn't be pursued against people who have just decided to go quarantine at home. But we might see pretty heavy penalties on people who are ignoring quarantine completely, um, you know, and, and just sort of out and about, despite the fact that they've recently entered the country. Kara added that because the rules are so confusing, as are the instances in which people face financial disincentives, it leaves space for people to make their own decisions in the midst of all of the gray area. So it's it's hard to know exactly, you know, what the government would do in terms of, of going after people who are, are not following the rules. I know that in the, you know, the first couple of days that these rules came into effect at the airports, we were seeing some people who just said, I'm not staying in a hotel. I have a perfectly good empty house to go isolate in. I want to go isolate there. Um, and in many cases, they were getting ticketed at the airport um, and the tickets were costing less than, you know, what a what what the air what the hotel stay would cost. So people were kind of making a calculation and saying, well, it's actually less costly for me to not comply with the rules than to comply with the rules. Uh, we don't know exactly what what the government is going to do, but I, I think you know the fact that people are choosing in some cases to to break the rules is in part a failing on government's part for not really um, explaining the rules well and also not constructing rules that that necessarily make sense to people. So for some people who have that extra pocket money and think the ticketing isn't a huge deal, this could be a kind of loophole. Meanwhile, there are so many groups of people who have and continue to risk their lives during this pandemic. So even though the restrictions for traveling in Canada have been pretty gray, the reality on the ground for the frontline workers for the last year has been very black and white. It's between life and death. I mean, we're one year into this pandemic, and if regular people like you and I are all tired of this, I can't even imagine how tired frontline health workers feel. They work long hours and watch thousands of people get sick and die from this deadly virus every single day. And then they turn on the news to see people fighting for their so-called rights to vacation. And instead of trying to imagine what it might be like, I connected with Dr. Shazma Mithani an emergency physician in Edmonton at the Royal Alexandra and Stollery Children's Hospitals. Dr. Mathani has been working on the ground since the beginning, feeling overwhelmed as a healthcare worker, only to see some people ignore restrictions and travel for leisure when she hasn't seen her family in months. Here she is. To hear about it and then to see it uh, were two, obviously two very different things, and um, it was very eye-opening. And so it's been it's been really hard seeing what we see at work and then outside of that world, seeing people be so dismissive of the seriousness of COVID adds an extra challenge because, you know, walking down the street, you probably wouldn't see how serious it is. But being in the hospitals, you do. I can't speak for everyone, but personally, I only thought about the physical risks health workers had to put themselves through. But this pandemic is as mentally and emotionally traumatic as it is physically. And everyone's experiencing pandemic fatigue, and many are struggling with their mental health because of the ongoing lockdown measures. But 
it's been so frustrating for me to watch people, you know, young and old, ignore these restrictions, while so many of us have chosen to not see anyone besides those in our immediate households. And while so many are tired of the pandemic, there is so much more weighing on healthcare workers every single day. Dr. Mithani said being a healthcare worker right now can be an isolating experience. Here she is again. The mental load and the like the moral injury that's taking place during these shifts is just really hard to recover from. It's not just like, oh, okay, well, I'm going to, you know, I have a couple of days off between my shifts and I'll just like rest and do some exercise. And then I'll be ready to go for my next shift. There have been two situations now where I have just had to give away my next shift because I could not even wrap my head around going into work because I was just so done where, um, like there, I was just, I would just like sit at home and cry because it was just too much. And it's, it's been really challenging. One of the things that I was like, just talking about yesterday is that, you know, although it, it just feels isolating to be a healthcare worker right now, it's, it's nobody understands other than your co coworkers, what it's like to be in the trenches right now, to be in the hospital, to see how sick people are getting to just kind of, you know, all we're trying to do is just put our heads down and work. Pandemic is isolating for everybody, right? We don't get to see our people. Um, the restrictions are making it really challenging from a mental health standpoint to do the things that you need to do to recover. But then I feel like a step beyond that for us is that we're, we just feel so isolated and that it's really hard for people to understand what we're going through. Again, everyone is tired. But this disconnect between healthcare workers and the general public is truly overwhelming our healthcare system. And part of that comes with the fact that people don't necessarily realize what it's like inside hospitals right now. I asked Dr. Mathani to describe what it was like in the emergency department in order to get a better understanding. Especially in the thick of things when um, we were peaking with hospitalizations just a few weeks ago. Um, it was it was all sick people all the time. And that is a really hard shift to endure. I mean, to give you an illustration of what it would be like, it's, you know, I'm in a resuscitation room um, trying to help someone who is really sick. And then at the same time, someone else gets brought in next door who's also really sick. And then at the same time, someone else gets brought in across the hall who's also really sick. And so that's actually not very common to have that happen. And so from a resource standpoint, that was challenging. From um, a mental capacity standpoint, that's really challenging to just always be on all the time. Um, and it's like a recipe for burnout, right? So to be so stressed at work all the time, to have your brain kind of um, always thinking about the complex cases all the time and the complex medicine all the time is really challenging. So it was patients who had complications of COVID-19, but also we saw patients who were waiting at home longer because they were scared to come into hospital, which means that when they did come in, they were quite a bit sicker. And so it was a mix of everything. Um, and I can tell you in the last few months, there have been two situations in particular where like normally um, most of us are very resilient people where having a couple of days between a shift to recover is enough to kind of bounce back to the next one. And in talking to my colleagues and in my own personal experience as well, that bouncing back is not happening. She told me that with all the burnout and stress that she has experienced, a vacation would have been a welcomed break. But this isn't the time to be taking vacations. We're so tired. It's been a really long year. You know, I, I would have loved to go on vacation somewhere warm. 
I mean, that's, that's, I think that's a coping mechanism for most humans is to take a break and have a vacation wherever that is, whether that's somewhere in the province or just time off work or, you know, leaving the province or the country. I think that that's kind of um, a desire for most people when, when they're stressed is just to take a break from it all. If anyone deserves a vacation right now, it's frontline health workers. They're the ones who have to witness the repercussions of everyone else's selfishness and ignorance. Exactly. And on that note, for those who do want to go on vacation, Dr. Mathani said that even if something isn't technically illegal, people still shouldn't be doing it. Here she is. And I mean, whether or not it is technically within the rules, it's not in the spirit of the rules. Uh, it clearly says, um, you know, no non-essential travel. And I would say that vacations and leisurely travel fall under non-essential. I think that that's pretty clear. Um, and so to see people being selfish and continuing to travel for leisurely purposes because that's what they want to do is really upsetting because uh, just because it doesn't affect you, it doesn't mean it doesn't affect everybody else around you. It doesn't mean that you might not accidentally bring back a new variant into your city or into your area. And that could lead to the um, hospitalization and potentially deaths of a lot of people from that. And so I think that continuing to travel for leisure during this time is an extremely selfish thing to do. And I'm glad that the federal government has put in, I mean, as much as people hate it and as much as people are upset about um, putting in the mandatory hotel quarantine upon coming back, I, I'm glad that they did it because there needs to be something to discourage people from doing this. And uh, for the most part, um, humans respond very well to uh, financial disincentives. One can hope. But that being said, the financial penalties need to be more effective in targeting the correct group of people. Because let's face it, average people like you and I aren't the ones who are traveling for leisure, undeterred by these financial disincentives. For sure. And Dr. Mathani said that it's important to keep in mind that healthcare workers are the ones faced with the everyday challenge of dealing with so many COVID patients as a result of the choices of so many people. Here she is again. I mean, I think it's just really important for people to understand that, that it's easy to be in your little bubble of safety. And uh, that's not what it's like for healthcare workers right now. It's, it's really stressful and it, it's not safe. It doesn't feel safe to have to expose ourselves every day because of the actions of other people. And while people have been commending our healthcare workers for the many sacrifices they have made, Dr. Mathani said it's up to all of us to continue to do our part so that we can make it through this. Everybody is like calling us heroes and stuff, which is, it's nice to hear, but it's like, yeah, sure, you can call us heroes, but like do your, do, do your part and, and that's what we want. We like do your part and make it easier for everybody and take the stress off the healthcare system by following the rules and just hanging on for a little longer. That was some really powerful stuff from Dr. Mathani and some really useful information from Kara. Thanks, Ramnik, for another great discussion. Thanks for listening. We'll see you next time. Don't forget to leave us a review, follow us on socials, and share this pod with a friend. And feel free to let us know what you want to see Decomplicated next. This episode was produced by Ramnik Johal and Carol Eugene Park. 
mixed by our audio producer, McKenna Hadley-Burke, and music composition by Sean Cameron. Thanks for joining us on today's episode of Decomplicated.